You are listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is a special 16th anniversary episode of the Jazz Session. If you are listening to this episode on Friday, February 24th, 2023, then today is the show's 16th birthday. It can drive now in the United States. That's very exciting. I started this show back in 2007, February 24th, of course, with an interview with saxophonist Grant Stewart. I had been hosting an afternoon drive time show on a jazz station in Rochester, New York for several years. And when I left that show, I did some other stuff and then eventually decided I really miss talking to jazz musicians. And so I started a podcast to do just that. Initially, the show kind of veered back and forth between talking about jazz musicians one week and talking about politics the next. And finally, a friend of mine said, you got to pick a lane here and make this show about one thing or the other, because people who want to hear about this music are not going to want to hear about these kind of general political stories and vice versa. So I said, "Okay, that's a great point. I'll do that. I decided I would make it about jazz, and then it was coming up with the name, and I don't remember where the jazz session came from, but I still love it all these years later, and I'm glad that I called the show that, even though it's possible to Google that phrase and sometimes find an advertisement for a local jam session in your town. (laughs) That's totally fine, (laughs) which immediately reminds me of the Lenny Bruce joke about a lot of people don't realize that if you cut out the ad for the jazz club in your local paper and smoke it, you'll get high. Uh, like we still have local papers and jazz clubs. Anyway, this episode is essentially a clip show, uh, which I hate when Stargate does it, but I hope we will love (laughs) as I do it. What I've done is I've taken a clip from each calendar year of the show, except for the one that we're currently in 2023, because it's pretty brand new. And these episodes are not, they're not archival episodes because they're a few weeks old. So anyway, I've taken a clip from every calendar year of the show, and I've chosen these clips in most cases based more on the context because there are a lot of interviews that have been conducted for the jazz session, and I have to be completely honest that for the vast majority of them, I don't remember how they happened. I see that they happened, and sometimes I even remember things that happened inside the interview, but most of the time, you know, it's just me sitting at a desk somewhere with my laptop open, talking to someone who's sitting at their desk somewhere else with their laptop open. But there are interviews that have a story, and so those are the ones I've chosen for the most part. I also noticed when I was putting the clips together that I tended to choose clips, or at least have chosen several clips, where the artist who's being interviewed spends most of the clip that I've chosen actually talking about someone else. But I kind of think that's nice because it broadens the scope of this anniversary show to include artists who aren't necessarily the ones who are the subject of the interviews. Particularly in the early days, there are going to be some variances in audio quality, which I'll just have to ask you to put up with. Uh, Certainly when this show started in 2007, we were in a very different world in terms of the easy accessibility of high quality, uh, particularly phone audio, than we are now. 
So a couple of the early episodes, you might just have to, you know, know that and put up with it. And I appreciate you being willing to do that. I think that's also true. I can't exactly remember when I switched to a digital field recorder. So the episodes that I recorded face-to-face with people immediately began sounding better once I did that. I think there's at least one episode here, it might be the second clip, um, where it might have been an old-school field recorder just based on the on the audio quality, but I wanted to bring it to you anyway because it's kind of a special person. So without further ado, let's dive into the first clip. As I said, I started this thing in February of 2007, and it was really on a wing and a prayer. First of all, Podcasts were clearly in their infancy back then. I had to explain to almost everyone I encountered what a podcast even was and that, no, you didn't need an iPod in order to listen to one. And what I did when I started the show was I still had an email list of record label reps and promoters and folks like that that I had dealt with when I worked at the jazz station. And I just sent them all an email and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. It has no audience right now. As a matter of fact, when I sent the email, it had no episodes either. But I said, most of you know me from interviews I've done with your people on the radio. And if you'd be interested in sending folks my way, I would love to have them. The very, I don't know, day I sent that out or shortly thereafter, I got uh, a message from a woman named Tina Pelican who worked for ECM Records. And she said, how about John Abercrombie? And John became episode number three of the jazz session. And for me, this was the moment when the concept of the show and the idea that it could be a thing became real. I have always associated this episode with the moment where, okay, if I can get John Abercrombie to come on this show, then I can probably get other people, you know, with John's kind of level of name recognition to come on the show. And maybe that means this is a thing I can actually do sustainably. The show hasn't always been about bringing on famous names. In fact, a lot of it hasn't been about that. But it is nice to have people that people recognize from time to time. And John was really the the big first example of that for me. In this clip, John talks about how Joey Barron ended up on his album, The Third Quartet. Mark Johnson was was my first choice just because I love to play with him, even from years ago when I played with Peter Erskine and him. We had a trio. So I think that was very self-explanatory for me. I wanted to play again with Mark. The, Joey Barron actually came about, interestingly enough, by default. The original drummer planned for this recording was Billy Hart. And Billy called me, I think, about two weeks before the record date and said no, he was going to California to play with Pat Martino and he couldn't make the session. So all of a sudden I was confronted with the idea of do I cancel a session or do I, do I try to find someone else or what do I do? And I uh, just got a list of drummers from my, my friend Adam Nussbaum and Adam sent me his uh, email list of drummers and the fir- one of the first ones that appeared was Joey Barron. And Joey and I had played together uh, years ago and I just thought this could be this could be really a good idea because I know what Joey's been doing recently, you know, playing more with John Zorn and more avant-garde kind of things. Plus, I also knew that Joey had the ability to play just about anything that was under his fingers, you know, his hands. So I called him up and he was home and we, uh, we had this long conversation, which mostly didn't have to do with music at all, it had to do with our personal lives and what had been going on. And then at the end of this, end of the conversation, he said, oh yeah, I can make the record date if you want, you know, so... I thought about it, and I said, I think this would be a really good idea. And I hadn't played with Joey for years, but I just kind of did it. You know, I said, okay, let's do it. It worked out to be even better than I imagined. You know, I mean, I think he's just perfect for a lot of bands, but I think especially with this band, he's, I can't think of anyone else that can do what he does, you know. 
Up next is a clip from show number 36 from April 20th, 2008. This was recorded in a weird spot, which is why I chose it. It was recorded in a manager's office at either a Borders or a Barnes & Noble. I can no longer remember which one. In Albany, New York. I was living in Albany at the time with my family. We had moved there, I think, in 2008, and we left in 2010. For that short window, we were living in Albany. And for some reason, and I no longer can remember why, except that he released four albums that year, but Chico Hamilton came, and he played a concert at this bookstore. I really wish I knew how that happened, but I don't remember it anymore. And I went there to see the show and to interview Chico. And before the show, we went back in this manager's office, which was the only quiet space we could find that didn't have in-store music playing overhead. And we chatted for a little while. And during the course of that, he talked about his attitude toward making music. Here's the clip. I think I play the same every time I sit down to play. I try to play you know, I do my best, whether I sound good or bad or indifferent. I'm doing the be- best I possibly can because my whole, bl- incidentally, I don't play music for people. I've been blessed because I'm able to make music, and I make music for music's sake. And I believe that music is one of God's will, and God's will will be done. And music should be played or made good at all times. But does the the presence of an audience change what happens? It don't bother me. Do? <laughs> I'm paying a men's room. I don't care. <laughs> On to the year 2009 now. I remember so clearly driving to the home of Steve Kuhn, the piano player. I don't really remember where it was. I think in the Hudson Valley somewhere because this was still the time when I lived in Albany. And we recorded this episode in Steve's kitchen. In fact, you can hear a little bit of the ambient noise of the appliances in his kitchen. I think probably his refrigerator. The image that I have so clearly in my mind from this interview, and if you're a longtime listener of the jazz session, I've probably talked about this before. I just remember when I got there, Steve asking me, would you like anything to drink? And I said, oh, I'd love a glass of water. And he went into his refrigerator and he pulled out one of those old school Tupperware pitchers. They were kind of a thin oval shape if you looked at them from the top down. And then they would have a a little cap that went over the spout that would lift up, but it was still attached to the top of the pitcher. And I just remember Steve taking a glass out of his cupboard and this, you know, like 1980s Tupperware pitcher out of his fridge and pouring me a glass of water. And while he was doing it, I was thinking, oh, this guy who's pouring me a glass of water played with John Coltrane. And I thought to myself in that moment, you know, this is two years into the show. I just thought to myself, this is a really, really cool thing that I'm doing. And I really am glad that I get to be in these spaces. So here's Steve talking about how he joined John Coltrane's band. Basically, I'm shy. So I would, but I, I got his phone number somewhere and called him and I said, I know you don't know who I am. I'm currently the pianist with Kenny Dorm's group. I just came to New York. Uh, and it would be great if we could maybe someday meet and just sit down and talk about music, maybe play a little together or something. And probably a week or two later, I get a phone call. I was staying at a hotel in mid- midtown Manhattan called the Bryant Hotel. That's where I was living in those days. I had just come to New York. <clears throat> and uh, he said he would rent a studio in the na- my neighborhood. And would I you know, join him, just come and we couldn't, so exactly that's what happened. We, the studio was the size of a postage stamp, really. It was very small, had an upright piano, 
<clears throat> couple of chairs, and we uh, sat, talked, played a little bit, talked about the music, and uh, for a couple of hours, and that was it. He he went home. I went back to the hotel, and with nothing in mind. I mean, he didn't say anything to me, yay or yes or no. Um, maybe a week or two, two went by again, and he called and asked me if I would come out to his house. He lived in Hollis, Queens, which is, uh, and he was married at the time to uh, Nita or Naima, as, and they had a, a daughter, I believe. I took the subway out there, and essentially we did the same thing: just talked and played, and uh, uh, she cooked dinner for us, and then he drove me back into Manhattan to the hotel. Again, there was no commitment of any kind, uh, negative, positive, anything. And then maybe another week or ten days, two weeks passed, and the phone rang in the hotel room and said, Steve, this is John, uh, would $135 a week be okay to start? That's the way he presented it. And of course, I was you know, over the moon. I couldn't believe it. Let's move on to 2010 and an interview with one of my favorite people in music, and just a person I, I really adore. Uh, we haven't really spoken at any length in many years now, but for a period of my life, I feel like I saw either in performance or on the street or in the course of an interview or some fashion, Amy Servini almost every week. It was a really nice time in my life. I just think Amy is one of those kind of people who, when you talk to them, you think to yourself, oh, that was a really good use of my time talking to this person. I just immediately feel better. I like the way Amy approaches music. I like the way Amy approaches life. Uh, if you are a jazz fan in this day and age, you certainly will know Amy from the trio Duchess uh, with Melissa Stiglianu and Hilary Gardner, both of whom have also been on the show, and you can find them in the archives. But... Uh, back in the day, in this time, 2010, Amy had just released an album called Love Fool, and she chose songs, in some cases, from pretty far outside the standard jazz repertoire, and so I asked her how she chooses the songs she likes to sing. For me, the challenge as a singer has been constantly to find things that excite me and that are new, and I feel like... There are so many people out there who have done the standards so much better than I will ever be able to do them um, that I thought I would find something else that speaks to me and that I can make my own and sort of create my own voice with. So in terms of the repertoire, I go for, I, I start with just a feeling. Do I love the song? Does it make me happy? Do I dance when I hear the song? Does it, you know, and then can we turn that into something that works? We can't always. We are trying really hard to get Dave Matthews in the book. It's not working. <laughs> We're really trying. I mean, it's just not It's not translating somehow. Um, but with all the songs that are on this record particularly, they were all songs that I loved growing up and that I, you know, had a connection with. And they ended up somehow working. Some of them, you know, the, the, the title track was sort of... Um, the ending, anyway, was a joke, but I'm sort of so open to so many different things that when my brother went for that doo-wop feel at the end, I was like, oh, well, yes, that might work. And everyone was like, oh, no, Aim, really? Is that good? Really? I was like, let's, let's just go with it. Let's see if it works. And, you know, it made it. So I think... Um, I think the cardigans were also joking, which I think helps. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, right. I think you are telling a joke about a joke they told, right? right. So right, right, it's right, all right. good in the end. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's on the same page. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> 
Let's take a look at episode 250 now of the Jazz Session. This is from March 25th, 2011, and it features Fred Hirsch. I recorded this in Fred's apartment in New York City, and my overriding image of the apartment, and I really hope this is accurate and not just a fever dream that I had, but is that in Fred's living room, there was a tiny stage. And on the tiny stage was a grand piano, probably maybe a baby grand piano. I don't really remember. And then, you know, you turned around and there was just a sofa there. And I can remember just being in this living room and thinking like, this is one of the coolest living rooms I've ever seen. And this is Fred Hirsch's piano. And hey, that dude on the couch is Fred Hirsch. <laughs> it was a cool moment. I really enjoyed this interview and talking to Fred. Fred at that time uh, had released a solo piano record and he talked about playing solo piano gigs and how he approached it. Here's the clip. Instead of reacting to other musicians, I'm, I'm reacting to different things. Uh, first of all, I'm reacting to the audience and feeling them in a different way because it's so intimate, just me and them. Uh, I also am reacting, believe it or not, between the left and right hands. I try to surprise one hand with what the other one is doing. Always, I'm very involved in whatever tune I'm playing. You know, I'm always, you know, reacting to that material, to where it puts me, whether it's something of mine or something of Monk's or a standard. You know, I choose tunes for reasons. And so, you know, I have a connection there. Um, that being said, it certainly is a challenge um, to, you know, keep it interesting during the week there were some tunes that i just you know pulled up out of thin air like memories of you which is on this disc i've played memories of you in eons you know but it just sort of seemed like okay let's do that and there were a number of other tunes during the week that i just played once that i had not thought about programming i just thought oh okay this would be fun so I just kind of did it with no expectation. And who knows, those may be some of the tracks that end up on the second volume. But, uh, you know, to, to surprise yourself, you know, is it's tricky. You have to, there is a mental thing with it. And I don't go in unprepared. I mean, I have a particular way into a piece. Um, the opening tune is in the wee small hours. And I knew that I wanted to use kind of trills. That was just, I just had that to go on. And I wanted to float the melody over this very, you know, uh, shimmery kind of texture. Uh, it was not worked out, but it was a starting point. Um, sometimes I'll do a tune where I don't play the melody until the end. I just start, uh, start improvising. So, you know, I do have specific ways in, but once I'm in, it can go a lot of different directions. We're into January of 2012 now. I was living in New York City. I also was living there in the at the time of the previous clip with Fred Hirsch. I was living in Brooklyn. And one day I went, I think it was kind of the late afternoon, I went to the Blue Note in Manhattan, and I met there with Jack DeJanet. 
I remember this so clearly, sitting at a table not too far from the stage, and around us, the staff of the Blue Note were setting up for that evening's entertainment. You can, in fact, you can hear that in this clip. There's noise in the background. There was really no way uh, to avoid it. And I just, this is another of the many moments in my life when I've been sat down in some reasonably innocuous location, sitting across from someone who I consider a legend of music, not just jazz music, but of music. And so it's so interesting to me when you talk to folks like that to hear the people that they themselves kind of dream about playing with. And in this clip, Jack talks about some folks that he would like to make records with. Let's say that maybe I'm moving into another area, you know, uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've talked about doing some projects, you know, with uh, with uh, Carlos Santana, uh, Paul Simon. Uh, you know, moving into areas of see where it will take us, you know. Uh, and I've done some things with Carlos before, but with Paul Simon is another story. But I've, I've always admired his uh, his uh, willingness to take risks, you know, doing, you know, music that's accessible but also has some substance to it. And I love the way he utilizes uh, drums and rhythm. Uh, and I got a chance to meet him and said, you know, hey, Paul, I really admire your, your, your work as an artist and production. And, uh, I'd really like to do something with you. He said, oh, really? He said, uh, oh, well, I was afraid to ask you. Uh, you know. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, well, you know, maybe, you know, that'll come about one of these days. We're into 2013 now, and episode 425, a person who's been on the show several times, and that's saxophonist Angela Davis. I chose this clip, honestly, just because I've always really adored Angela and Angela's music. I've just always thought that she was an incredibly intelligent and wise and kind person. And whenever we've talked, I've really, really enjoyed those conversations. And then I really dig the music she makes on top of that. When this uh, interview was recorded, I'm pretty sure that Angela lives back in Australia now, if memory serves. But when this interview was recorded, she lived in Harlem. And for whatever reason, I have this really clear image in my mind of getting off the train and stepping out into this really brilliantly sunny day as I walked up a street to find Angela's apartment building. And that's kind of sunny image. And then, you know, sitting, I think, maybe at her kitchen table to record this interview has just really always stuck with me as one of those kind of pleasant memories that almost seems like a a memory you can touch, you know, that kind of thing. So here's a bit about Angela talking about the influence of saxophonist Dick Oates on her development as a player. And I'll just note, uh, this would this gets noted later in the interview, but not in this clip, just in case Dick Oates is a new name for you. He uh, played saxophone in the Vanguard uh, Orchestra for a very long time, and uh, he was a big influence on Angela, and she talks about why in this clip. When I was in my final year at, in Brisbane at the Conservatorium, I found out about the Manhattan School program in Amsterdam, you know that? With, mm-hmm. And so I, I got into that and went there and learned off Dick Oates. And Dick Oates was a huge part of me moving here, I think, and studying here. And, and I knew that was really the next step to come over here. And, and it's been amazing because now all of the, the musicians I was listening to back home in Australia, I actually know and meet, have met and can talk to. So it's, it's pretty incredible, really. What about studying with Dick Oates was so convincing or so... At that point, I wasn't such a great improviser and he really opened my mind up um, to playing the saxophone really well 
in an improvisational sense, you know, technique-wise and sound-wise. And he, I think, really opened up my sound a lot more because even then it was a little too classical, but he just taught me to put air through the instrument, you know. Um, so, yeah, he's taught me so many invaluable lessons about being a musician and not just saxophone but just life as a musician and always always practicing always striving always listening you know on to march 3rd 2014 episode 430 of the show and a conversation with vocalist allison wedding now this is interesting to me i because i was choosing clips based on the context i remembered of the interviews I chose this clip because I clearly remembered that we conducted it in a ramen shop in Brooklyn, I think on Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, and it was Allison and me and Nadia Nordhaus. However, when I listened to this clip, it was clear to me that that is not where we recorded this. I don't know where we recorded it. I'm guessing just from the quiet in the clip that we must have recorded this at Allison's New York apartment, but I really don't remember. However, I found a picture... Just by freakish coincidence, I found a picture of Allison and Nadia and me in that ramen shop. So maybe we didn't record an interview there. Maybe we just hung out. And I don't remember what the context for that was either. Who knows? In any case, I really like Allison and her music. And in this clip, she talks about her approach to writing lyrics. We talk about when you started writing lyrics or poetry, or did you kind of do it? Did you write a lot of angst-filled poetry in high school, like I everybody sure does? Did. Well? Yeah, <laughs> of I course, did. everyone does. You know, it's funny. I when I go home to visit my folks, sometimes I will go through old. You know, I have like old journals, and I'll just read them, and I look back, and I'm like, "Damn, I was hip." Some of the crap that I wrote was really good, and. You know, I, I had like these journals and I was drawing little doodles, these really cool looking things. And yeah, I just, I've always been into the lyric side of things. And I remember I, I used to love Duran Duran. Uh, yes. I still think Duran I actually think they're great, but their lyrics are a bit ridiculous. Yes. But, you know, I guess I, I started to think about lyrics in that way. And, and I've always tried to stay away from the cliche stuff and I, I find that really hard it can be really hard you know but yet trying not to be clever for the sake of being clever sure is also like I don't, I don't go you know i don't delve into like really difficult vocabulary i yeah. want people to understand where i'm coming from but uh i like to think metaphorically a lot and trying to state maybe something that is really obvious in a maybe not so obvious way the next two clips are somewhat related because they both feature members of the Respect Sextet. Unless you're just being introduced to the jazz session with this program, in which case, thank you for being here and welcome. You probably know that the Respect Sextet provide the theme music for this show, and they have since day one back in 2007. I cannot express to you or to them how grateful I am that they let me do that back in the day, and they have just allowed me to use this song for all these years. <laughs> As a matter of fact... I remember at one point, uh, I hope she's not embarrassed if I say this, but I remember at one point when I was talking to Nikki Shrira about taking over the show, 
we had a conversation where at one moment she just started singing the theme song like quite well i I really like nikki's singing Uh, but she just like note perfectly whipped the theme song out real quick in this conversation and i just thought yeah 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 that's definitely the right person so huge thanks to the guys in the respect sextet for letting me associate their absolutely brilliant music with this show for all these years so the first clip from a member of Respect comes from episode 453, and it's Red Wirenga. Red and uh, Josh Rutner and I in particular go back a long way. Uh, I knew them both as musicians in Rochester, but also as uh, DJs at the radio station that I ran in Rochester, New York, where they hosted a show called Hilaire on the Air that was like nothing that had ever been on that station, and it is like nothing that ever has in the subsequent years but on that station, and it was a magical little moment uh, that... I'm so happy to have had the tiniest part in that tiny part being to bring them onto the air. Uh, I adore uh, Red and Josh and the way they think and their music. And though I am not uh, hip enough to keep up with them and never have been, I really love just getting to be around them and listen to them talk. So here's a clip of Red where he talks about what it's like for guests to sit in with the Respect Sextet, which at that point in 2015 had already been going for quite a number of years. There are certain jokes that we do that uh, it's basically irrelevant if someone else catches them or not. Um, Some things that we just do so often that they're basically just uh, winks to to each other. Um, In general, I find it works really well if if, um, whatever guests are playing with us bring as much of their personality as possible. Um, I think it's a natural tendency if you're playing in a new group, especially a group that has been around for a long time, to sort of uh, defer and um, maybe be a little bit in the background. And especially for for rhythm section musicians, it's really important in respect if you just really uh, be forthcoming and uh, put as much of your personality into the music as possible. From 2016 now, in episode 459, it's the other member of the Respect Sextet I mentioned having been on the radio station with me, and that's Josh Rutner. Uh, Josh and I have been friends for many years, and he's one of those people I enjoy uh, sounding things off with, you know, when I need someone who has a really broad perspective on the world and who knows a lot and is really well-read and interesting and creative. Josh is often one of those people I'll talk to, and I always value what he has to say. He released an album called Rockabye Battleship, and on this February 2016 episode, he talks about the fairly improbable process of being able to make the album at all. Here's the clip. This album definitely speaks to me the same way. I think of it sometimes uh, as as like a mixtape that I put together to, you know, to represent myself, but I just happen to be playing all of the tracks. So in that sense, it pulls together a lot of um, a lot of covers and then even some of the tracks that I wrote are sort of um, pulling in elements from from the outside. Um, Yeah, it started about about four years ago, almost to the day from when we're recording this um, in early 2016. Um, I started uh, with my friend Phil Weinrobe. Phil is a is a friend of mine, actually, from when we were. Uh, early teens, we went to camp together. And one day in New York, I was coming home from my uh, then job uh, ushering at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And I took the C train home. And on the way, and when I got home, I saw an email. And it was from Phil saying, I think I saw you on the train. I haven't seen you in 10 years, but I think I saw you on the train. (laughs) Do you play saxophone? Um, 
he's, he saw my saxophone with me. So it was an amazing, uh, it was amazing to get back together with him after all that time. And he had since gotten really into studio stuff and he had been running a studio, um, in, on the Lower East side. And, uh, he, he is basically the guy who kind of made this very ambitious project possible, uh, when it is completely improbable, uh, in the sense that we spent, uh, in this little basement studio, you know, over 150 hours uh, of studio time, whether that be me, uh, recording overdubs or me bringing in, you know, kind of person by person, uh, guests to fill in the spots. Um, I saw the album a lot of times as well as kind of like a film that required certain scenes, you know, to be edited in. So, you know, we have everything, but we're missing a bass. So we need a bass here or we need some sort of percussive element here. Um, and, and this was all done kind of after the fact. So in a sense, not very filmically. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was very by the seat of the pants and, and, and having such a long time to sit with it and to play with it. And I did so much uh, editing on my own um, and, and just little mixes and trying them out for a couple weeks of listening and then go back in the studio and, and tweak something or, uh, or get rid of something entirely. Uh, it, it was a real a real pleasure to have this much time. I'm so glad it the it took this long. March of 2017 now, episode 462. This is the only episode of its kind in that it was originally recorded on a morning radio show that I was hosting in State College, Pennsylvania, on a station uh, 98.7 The Freak, which is a, a AAA station, like basically an alternative rock and Americana station. And I hosted a show called The Morning Mixtape. And while I was hosting that show, Darcy James Argue and his band came to town to put on a performance of his Brooklyn Babylon project. And so I had them on my morning show and then repurposed that interview for this episode, number 462 of the jazz session. Darcy in this describes Brooklyn Babylon, which, as I mentioned, they were about to put on live at Penn State. And it involves both visual art and music. And he at one point he references another person by their first name here. And that's the artist who did the visual art component. Here's the clip. It is, uh, as you said, a, a multimedia production, and it involves live painting, uh, projected animation uh, onto this uh, enormous scrim, uh, and those elements were created by Daniel. Uh, and then there's live music that uh, accompanies the, the projected animations and um, the, the painting. So um, th these, there's a story sort of an urban fable that is the um, that's the story that we're telling with those three elements and and it's about um, uh, a carpenter named uh, Lev Bezdomny and uh, he and his granddaughter Mara uh, are living in Brooklyn and they have uh, a nice life they have a great neighborhood coffee shop that they love and then one day they're summoned by the supreme local authority, the mayor of Brooklyn, who announces that he's going to build the tallest tower in the world um, right in the heart of Brooklyn. And uh, it's going to be 1,000 meters tall, over 3,000 3, feet tall. And uh, he would like Lev to build the carousel that is going to go on the roof of this enormous tower. Um, and uh, Lev at first is very honored. 
and he uh, begins construction on the carousel, then begins to realize uh, what the construction of this enormous tower and this um, uh, huge footprint that it will require will mean for the neighborhood that he loves and uh, the community of people around him. So he has to sort of wrestle with his role um, in the construction of uh, and sort of the symbolism of this tower. We're still five years away from the present day, and we're already up into September of 2018. It's kind of amazing to me as I'm recording this material just how long this show has been going on. I was, uh, if you've been listening to any of the bonus episodes recently, uh, not the uh, This I Dig of You shows, but the, the longer bonus episodes that I've been doing with my friends Patrick and Aaron, I texted them when I was in the process of putting this uh, birthday episode together and set, you know, was saying it's 16 years. And uh, I think Patrick and I were both, I don't know, I was going to say lamenting. I'm not sure that's the right word. We were certainly both struck by the reality of A, how long we've known each other and B, how long this show, which is what brought us together, has been going on. In any case, this is an interview from episode 463 with another person who's had a big effect on my life, um, who I actually know significantly less well than Patrick, but uh, it's Demetri Matheny. And he had a very big non-musical effect on my life because it was Dimitri in 2020 who introduced me to the concept of van life. And by the end of 2020, I was living in a van and uh, traveling the country and have continued to live in a van for the last uh, couple of years. Dimitri is a flugelhorn player and also a big comic book nerd, and we've bonded a lot over the nerdy things that we both share in common. But in this particular clip, I asked him about a different flugelhorn player, the great Art Farmer. Here's what he had to say. He was, for me, um, a, a pretty huge discovery in my musical development when I was I was a trumpet player and I was kind of doubling on flugelhorn. I loved the flugelhorn and I, and I loved his music. And the more deeply I got into his music, the less and less I wanted to play the trumpet and the more I found myself, uh, you know, really guided in the direction of the flugelhorn. And, um, to, you know, to my ears, he's the greatest practitioner of that instrument in history. I mean, no one ever really was able to get as rich and as beautiful a sound on the flugelhorn and to really explore its timbres so completely. And um, let's see, he, he uh, gosh, when in the late 80s, um, when I met him, he was living in Vienna, Austria, but coming over to the United States and spending about half his year touring mostly in the States and, um, was enjoying kind of a resurgence of interest. Um, it was very active recording, had a quintet with a, a saxophone player, Clifford Jordan. And, um, and I just had the opportunity to meet him. And at that point he was, he was really my hero and I had been writing him letters and listening to his music. And I was kind of obsessed to tell you the truth. I was a little bit of a stalker, you know? Um, and then, and when I, when I had the opportunity to meet him and study with him, it, it, it became a kind of a finishing school for me. I was, I was all finished up at the Berkeley college of music in Boston and I was just starting my professional life. And uh, I had a lot of questions, man, just about how you get this thing done. And he was incredible. He was so generous with his time and his talent. He was so sweet to me. And, um, you know, at first I would go down, I would go to New York and, and sit next to him on the piano bench and we'd work on tunes and things. And after a while, I, I actually kind of just started following him around on the road and carrying his case and just pestering him with questions and 
he was awesome. He, he, he was so great to me. I, I'm eternally grateful to Art Farmer. I got to spend the last 10 years of his life uh, uh, studying with him. And so he really definitely became a mentor to me. We're on to episode 476 now from March of 2019. This is with the guitarist Mike Baguetta. I really like Mike. Uh, he's another guy. I feel like there's a bunch of people kind of in my life who I have really, really warm feelings for. And those are based on very infrequent contact. You must have those people too, right? People you just think like, yeah, this is a person that anytime our lives intersect, I'm really, really happy about it. That just doesn't happen very often. We don't and never have lived near one another. And, you know, we run in some of the same circles, but not in a way that really matters uh, in terms of our coming into contact. But whenever we do have a contact, I always think, oh, man, what a good guy. So anyway, Mike Baguetta put together this trio record with Mike Watt, a bass player who was one of the founders of the Minutemen. And I mean, just a legend in you know the punk and rock worlds. And then while we're on the subject of people who are legends, the drummer on the record is Jim Keltner, who's been on, I don't know, 80% of all the music you've ever heard somewhere in there. So anyway, I got to go see Mike Baguetta and uh, Mike Watt in Beacon, New York, and I was absolutely thrilled to get to see the band. Uh, it was really wonderful to spend some time with both Mikes, actually, uh, Mike Baguetta, who I already knew, and Mike Watt, who I met that night and just couldn't have been nicer. And in this clip, Mike Baguetta talks about how he pulled together that particular trio with Mike Watt and Jim Keltner. But I started thinking about it more after that. So I was just sort of thinking about all this stuff in conjunction at the same time from everybody. And I started thinking like, well, who are my, who's my favorite bassist and who's my favorite drummer in terms of like who has the craziest, weirdest, kind of snakiest grooves um, that maybe could add that element to my music that I kind of been wanting to sort of take, take more of a stab at over the years in a way. So in my mind, I was just like, well, it's obvious. It's Jim Keltner and it's Mike Watt. And that's kind of a crazy combination. If you think about just sort of in terms historically genre wise or whatever, but, but in my mind, there was no doubt that it was, it was going to feel amazing and, and work. And so this kind of started like a two year process of, <laughs> of kind of trying to make this thing happen. Um, so when I originally told Chris Schlarb about this idea to do it with, to do a trio with Jim Keltner and Mike Watt. I remember I was sort of half joking, thinking like, there's no way this will ever happen, but wouldn't that be such a cool idea? You know? And we were both kind of half joking about it for a while. And then I think after like another year of sort of this coming up once in a while, we were both like, wait a minute, can we actually, can we actually do this? And we started sort of taking it a little more seriously and, and kind of trying to put a schedule together and, and this and that. Getting very close to the present day now. We're up to May of 2020, episode 522 with Wendy Eisenberg. I chose Wendy for this particular calendar year because I just like everything about their music. Uh, you can never tell from one record to the next what you're going to get, except that what you're going to get is going to be exciting, it's going to be searching, it's going to be honest, and it's going to sound awesome. And I just adore everything that Wendy is up to. In this particular clip, Wendy talks about the self-imposed isolation that led to an album of solo acoustic music. I've been writing songs for a long time, but 
I hadn't really given myself the time to produce it by myself since like 2017. Um, I, I've been working on a songs record that's produced out with my friend Nick Zanka, who goes by Mr. Lies or went by Mr. Lies. So that's going to be coming out in the future. But this record was a, a bunch of songs I'd written after that record was in the can. And I didn't know where to put them. And they're not produced out, really. They're just sort of demo tape versions of songs. But I just wanted something to be out there because it had been so long since I'd released songs. But as for the quarantine aspect of it, around Christmas last year, 2019, I was going through a breakup. And so I asked a family member who had a, a house if I could borrow his house and just be there alone for a week. And I would just wake up, record and track and write and then watch Northern Exposure and go to sleep every day. And that was like my little quarantine before we all had to do it. So I've had a little bit of practice. But about half the songs come from that session and the other half come from last week or so. And now we're up to the final clip that I'm going to choose, although not the final clip. This is from March 3rd, 2021. It's episode 547 and it features Chloe Rollins. This interview was part of an entire season of interviews that I did with women and non-binary folks. And I did not announce, although I have spoken about it since, I did not announce while that season was going on that that's what I was doing. I just did it. And then at the very end of the season, when the last interview was finished, I made a social media post in which I showed that the previous 40 or whatever episodes had all been with women and non-binary folks. And I don't know if this was an effective message, but I was just trying to show that that is possible, that the way, you know, festivals are often uh, scheduled and the way retrospectives are put together and the way compilation albums are made and the way academic programs are staffed, those kinds of things, uh, the fact that they often do not have women and non-binary folks included is not because those folks aren't out there. And so this attempt to put together this season was me doing that. However, I, the reason I never mentioned it during the season was I never wanted the fact that I was engaged in that kind of little secret side project to overshadow the fact that every single person booked during that season was just a phenomenal musician who, of course, deserved to be there. That was a, a, a truth that went without saying, and so I never said it. Chloe is part of uh, the band The Westerlies, and in this clip, she talks about the practice regimen that they went through before the recording of their album This Land with Theo Blackman. That just takes lots of time and I think really precise, intentional practice um, in the rehearsal process that we had. And we had the great fortune of having um, two full weeks of intensive rehearsal in the very, very beginning of this project up at... Um, this wonderful uh, place called the Yellow Barn. Um, they they gave us a residency over the summer and a, a place to rehearse in the in the woods up in Putney, Putney Vermont. Um, so we had basically eight hours a day for two weeks straight where we would get together in a room and just rehearse. And that's where we came up with the entire program for everything. But apart from just getting um, into the music for the for the program and for the album, we also got into the really really nitty gritty parts of, of rehearsal, like intonation, like you talked about. Um, and one of the pieces that comes to mind with that is the the first track on the album, the, the fiddle and the drum, the uh, Joni Mitchell track. And uh, that's like the 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 voicings for all of the parts that the that the Westerlies are playing on there are 
are sort of really open and um, those more open voicings uh, can can be really, really hard. And, and we're sort of up high on our instruments, which is a little more challenging with intonation too. So we, we actually would go through every single chord, chord by chord, just hanging on um, to our notes for, for a few minutes at a time and all sort of like adjusting both our intonation and also our, our, our uh, volume. Um, a lot of intonation can come from like certain parts of a chord, uh, just getting a little softer. Maybe the third of the chord doesn't need to be quite as loud. Maybe it sounds a little out of tune, but if the person who's playing the third of this chord just um, plays a little softer, it'll suddenly just snap in place. So I'll be back with you at the end to say goodbye, but there is one more clip. And so for this clip, let me turn things over to the other person who has hosted this show. Hi there, listeners to and fans of The Jazz Session. My name is Nikki Schrera, and I had the absolute joy and delight of being the host of this podcast for its 14th season between 2021 and 2022. Now, one should not have favorites, children, podcast episodes. However, this is my assignment, and I will gladly rise to the challenge. One of my interviewees was the Los Angeles, Paris-based vocalist and musician Tierney Sutton. And something that she said really resonated with me, and it's something that I now quote to other people and to my students. And that is, she spoke about doing the thing. And the joy of being a jazz musician is that you get to do the thing. And if it is your calling, hopefully you do the thing well, and it means that you just get to do it a lot more. It being make music with tremendous musicians, collaborate, write, and create things. So here is Tierney talking about doing the thing and how being a jazz musician is really just being a worker, getting the work done, and enjoying the process. Being a jazz musician is its own, its own reality. And LA is the same as everywhere else when you're a jazz musician. You know, um, I didn't really start my career in earnest until I was 30. And I didn't start making albums really seriously until I was almost 40. So I came to this, so I, I wasn't doing this, you know, in any kind of really serious way, super early in my life. I mean, it, it was right after college that I knew it was what I was going to do, but I was kind of slow to get started. I had an illness and a lot of things sort of slowed me down a little bit. But um, the point is that the entire uh, way that I look at it and have looked at it from the beginning is that the best part of this is being able to do the thing. And I don't expect to get paid a lot of money to do the thing. And I don't expect rewards for doing the thing. Um, I just am honored to do the thing with people that are great at doing the thing and help me get better. And I found those people in LA. And so I moved to LA because I had access to great musicians that I could collaborate with, which is the, the essence of what being a jazz musician is. Uh, I mean, I was listening to your interview with uh, Terrence Blanchard and he was talking about, you know, what Art Blakey did, which was to have the guys in the band write and arrange and be a part of things. And that, that's, to me, the nature of how this really, really works its best. And I think I'm a little unusual in that 
singers traditionally haven't thought as much that way. You know, singers traditionally have been like, well, this is my repertoire, this is what I do, and if you're going to be in my band, you'll pay, play what it is that I do. And I've never really had that philosophy. I've always wanted to find what it is that will invest the people that I'm working with, whoever they are, and hopefully they'll be great musicians. So this is a pretty humble art. I mean, it's just humble. It really, really is. It's not really a roller coaster because it never goes up to the real, you know, like doing things with Clint Eastwood, that's that's a cool thing. And, and, and hanging out with him, I mean, there's fame and there's Clint Eastwood fame. You know, when you hang out with Clint Eastwood, and I've had dinner with him many times, and in Paris we had dinner uh, a couple of times too. And, um, you know, the way people react to him is just, it's weird. And so compare that to how people react to um, Wayne Shorter or the, the, the you know, icons of our music and how they react to them is they don't know who they are. You know, the general populace doesn't even know our heroes. And so I, I just, from the beginning, I've known that it isn't, it's not really a fame game because the people that are my biggest, biggest, biggest heroes in the world are not famous, not, not Clint Eastwood famous. And so the thing is that I think there's a kind of normalizing humility to being a jazz musician. You're a worker, and, and the biggest reaction that I've had to being nominated for Grammys is, cool, maybe they'll let me do this some more. And that's kind of it, you know, because it's fun to do. And, and it's what I think I should be doing with my life, as, as far as I can tell. That's Tierney Sutton interviewed by Nikki Schreira. Thanks, Nikki, for being part of this celebration and for being part of the history of the jazz session. I'm really proud to have you alongside me. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the hundreds of musicians who've been on this show in the past 16 years. Thanks to all the members who make this show possible and who allow me to keep the archives of the jazz session freely available to everyone. It actually costs a fair amount of money because these episodes get downloaded a lot, and there are a lot of them. So that takes a lot of both storage space and bandwidth, and it is people's memberships that help me do that. If you have enjoyed what you've been listening to during this special show and you would like to help out, you can become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You get a fair amount for that, besides just the good feeling of doing a good thing and helping me keep these archives online. You also get early access to every episode. With each episode, you get a bonus show called This I Dig of You, on which the artist from the main episode talks about something non-musical that they're enjoying. You'll also get thanked by name by me on an episode. You'll get some behind-the-scenes info from time to time. All of that, again, for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com join. By the way, if everybody who listened to these episodes became a member, this could become my job tomorrow. What a beautiful world that would be. In any case, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to everybody who's in this clip show. Thank you to everybody who's been on the show. Thank you to all of you who've written to me over the years to tell me what the show means to you. You mean the world to me. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.